0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor John Goodman. You know, John Goodman wasn't always the imposing presence he is today, but he's always had his charisma. As an eighth grader in Missouri, John charmed the hard guys in school with a spot-on Gomer Pyle impression so they would protect him. As he explains, I was a little fat kid. I had the glasses with the tape in the middle. I was nerdy, man." Well, that nerdiness went away. And as John got older, he became heavily influenced by Marlon Brando and captivated by the language of Shakespeare. John discovered his dream to become an actor and left the Midwest for New York to make it happen. After a stint as Thomas Jefferson in a dinner theater rendition of 1776, John found commercial success in New York City but his career really took off when Roseanne came along in the late 80s. He's also been a fixture in several Coen Brothers movies, including Raising Arizona, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Big Lebowski, and others, bringing his characteristic physicality to roles that simmer with an explosive energy. Exhibit A, screaming obscenities and beating the bejesus out of a Corvette with a crowbar in The Big Lebowski. That on-screen volatility was also present in John's off-screen life. Decades of heavy drinking forced John to confront his demons, and as a self-described egomaniac with an inferiority complex, he has come out the other side with humility, grace, and an endearingly self-deprecating sense of humor. His perspective on his life and career is downright fascinating. John brings candor and wit to our off-camera conversation, We discuss why everything is on the page with the Coen brothers, how Roseanne came back after a 21-year hiatus, why John in his early 20s looked for trouble in Central Park, and how the movie Animal House was a terrible influence. So pull up a chair and listen in.
1: Hi, John. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Uh, It is distinctly my pleasure. It's fun to have you here in
0: my studio. because the last time we really spent time together, as you reminded me, was England, and before that it was Germany. Yeah. And here's something you don't know. I was almost your co-star on that film. Which role? On Monuments Men that you, you were in, George Clooney directed, and that's where I met you, and we spent time. George wrote a part for me as a Stars and Stripes photographer. Yeah. And, uh, and you know I had a few lines and everything, and uh, I got really nervous leading up to it once I read the script and I started doing the, you know, the thing that Kramer does on Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these pretzels are making me thirsty <laughs> and, and you know, practicing my lines and everything. <laughs> and then I get over there to Germany and I find out that uh, he's cut the scene.
1: But he got you over there. He got me <laughs> over there.
0: But, you know, the world never got to see my acting talents.
1: Not even, it's not even on the floor somewhere. No, it's not. It didn't even get shot. But you're still rehearsing the line? I still that's what I do. Every <laughs> time I finish a movie, there's a, a line or two. God damn it, why didn't I do it that way? Is that true? Oh, all the time. And,
0: and the realization will happen later, and you'll be like, "Now yeah. I know how to play it?
1: Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I, it, it less and less, but I still do it.
0: Well, when I was in high school, I was in a few plays, and I, I got kind of laughed out of theater, and then it got squashed by the fact that I, I developed really late and I...
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny, I'm a late bloomer myself. Is that true? Yeah, and my emotional stability was never up to it until I got out of uh, alcohol treatment. And then I kind of, because they say, when you start drinking heavily, that's the age you remain. And I, I was 27 or something like that, but I was still very immature. See, that strikes um, me as
0: crazy think of you, I think of, oh, this guy probably was, you know, a big football-playing jock, all that I went, stuff.
1: I went down to uh, what was then Southwest Missouri State College to uh, try to walk on the team, and my grades were terrible. I was slower than anybody, and, but the only thing I did was like to hit, and I liked to be part of a team, but I was really, you know, they weren't that interested. They said, you're going to have to come back when your grades improved, and I was... I was up hanging on by my fingernails in college because I was so immature. And then a couple months later, I got involved in the theater department. Um, and I was a late bloomer there. I, I, I couldn't get any classes when I first transferred. And when I did, it just cha- it changed my life. No um, kidding. Yeah, it just it gave me a focus. Like I said, I like doing this. I, I really enjoyed the discipline because I'd, I'd had none.
0: Well, you say you had none. Were you, did you grow up? I mean I, I read that you your dad died when you were really young. I was a,
1: it was a month before my second birthday. Oh my gosh. So and you, my sister was born uh about four months later. Oh so your mom was pregnant yeah, with your sister with when your sister. dad died. Yeah.
0: Did you do you have any memories of him at all?
1: None. None. I think I may I have flashes of uh being in a swimming pool. Um but I can't trust them. Huh. I I don't trust my own memory because it's been, I had 30 good years of of, uh, erasing the tape. (laughs) You did your
0: best to scrub the history.
1: (laughs) I feel pretty bad. Maybe this will make me feel better. There you go.
0: But, you know, I can't imagine not having a dad. I mean, the dads were sort of the disciplinarians of that era. I
1: can't imagine having one. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I just... I missed a lot, apparently. My brother tried to... My brother's 14 years older than I am. They told my mom she couldn't have any more children. I... Really? Yeah. So he he came back to St. Louis after a while and uh, started... You know, he goes, you're going to the Y twice a week. Okay. So he kind of tried yeah, to step because I was a little in. fat kid. What I was doing, I was eating... Uh, Eating uh, addictively. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, I just puffed up and he tried to take care of that and then uh, I started getting involved in uh, football.
0: Was there like, was there money in the house? Was there, did you guys have money? We had the
1: house. Um, The house was paid for. Okay. And then she got uh, dad's uh, social security benefits. She went out and um, she would take in kids. She'd babysit all day. Okay. Take in laundry. Uh, She got a job at a drugstore helping people, I guess, um, I paid $40 a week.
0: So your dad's not around, your mom's working all the time. Yeah. You're kind of on your own. Yeah. From a young
1: age. Yeah, um, which I don't mind, but in my case, you know, I started eating. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd sneak food. Sneak it into your room at night. and. Yeah,
0: just, you know, make games out of eating. Really? Yeah. Did someone else step in besides your brother
1: and did your mom no. remarry or anything? No. No. She had boyfriends, but they they didn't like us the kids, so what was that like? Well, we didn't like them right back um <laughs> uh, it, it was hard on my mother i got yeah. well you know in retrospect uh and she you know she'd always talk about dad and this and um so she had a rough time, yeah, and then um it, we got we got raised we uh even spoiled a little bit. You know, you got two kids running around going, gimme, 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 I want what I see on TV. Can I have it, can I have it, can I have it? No, can I have it, can I have it, okay. (laughs) But it was great. Once I got the television show, um, I could get her a house um, and make sure she was taken care of. And it it just gave me a good feeling. I'd I'd hear embarrassing stories about her in in the grocery line. She, oh, she couldn't not she couldn't not talk about me. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Yeah, but you can imagine the pride that she must have felt, right? I guess,
1: but she did. She finally had something to brag about.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, were you
1: me? <laughs> we'll fix that shit.
0: <laughs> did you ever like indulge her a little bit and come home and let her take you out to dinner and like, kind of indulge yeah, the oh, supermarket lifestyle? No, line it and was a,
1: a great pleasure to go back to St. Louis. Um, great pleasure, because I, I always stuck close to the high school guys. Oh, you did? Yeah. I mean, I like I said before, I was really immature. And I was in ninth grade, I started um, hanging around with the the in crowd and get turned on. All these guys listen to um, African-American radio stations. And when I got that in my head, it was life-changing. Yeah, the K-S-H-E-F-M... Uh, St. Louis, Missouri, right now, Hendrix.
0: I think people who are younger don't realize the impact of radio in that period. It was
1: immense. We had a disc jockey on KMOX, go oh, KXOK, named Johnny Rabbit. And he had the Johnny Rabbit Army. And I was in the Johnny Rabbit Army. This is when I was still more nerdy. But radio was huge. It was in everybody's car. And, uh, I'd go through phases where I'd listen to Top 40. Then I'd go over to K-A-T-Z, 1600 on your dial, the last spot on your dial for soul, and blues music in St. Louis, Missouri. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, get into those shows. And Gee, I want to be black. <laughs> the cat at the car wash says, no, you, you can't be. You got look at me, man. <laughs> we had a great station in St. Louis called Camel Wax with broadcasts of the Cardinals, and Jack Buck worked there. Oh, yeah. I wanted to be a DJ. You did? Uh, yeah, it just seemed like everybody listened to you, and they were always funny, and they got to listen to music all the time. I didn't know what went into it, and I didn't know how hard that job was. I mean, my brother saved up $1,000 for me to go to grad school, and my freshman year I wanted to blow it and go to a Columbia School of Broadcasting. God, it sounds like your brother was a pretty amazing guy. To like. Yeah, he, uh, he, I got my sense of humor from him. Um, he'd make me shut up while he turned on Bob and Ray on uh, NBC Monitor, Ernie Kovacs, Sid Caesar. Later on, um, was
0: there a film you remember when you were young where you're like, "Well, oh, maybe I could do that, or I want to do that, or
1: was there a?" Film? I, remem- I remember, I remember something I never thought I could do, but um, my 16th birthday, we went to the drive-in. I bought through two friends, a case of malt liquor, <laughs> and um, my friends took off to look for girls, and I sat and watched Romeo and Juliet by myself. But it really made an effect on me, and I said, I'd, I'd like to be able to speak like that.
0: Really, it yeah. was the language that got you.
1: Yeah, and then later, uh, watching on the waterfront, the wild one. Yeah. Uh, streetcar Named Desire. Brando was a big influence. Brando was huge. I was it was I was I overly obsessed with Brando. Can you explain that to me? When I was in college.
0: Because I'm, you know, by the time I was looking at films, it was a different era. And everyone I talked to from that time and and us, every serious actor, Brando is their sort of touchstone. And I want to know what it was that he was doing okay. that was so different. To me, Yeah,
1: he was a poet. He would condense everything into its essence. I think later on he had a beautiful technique where he would to you and be talking to you like this and be reading his lines the whole time but he knew where to place the cue cards so it would have an effect when i saw last tango in paris he was giving a speech over his wife dead wife and he uh, did that one time and it just floored me it threw me back against my chair one simple little essence and he was reading his lines
0: no kidding yeah
1: but he knew where to put them and then the godfather came out right which is just pure poetry on in an acting scale and, but he made it, gave it the illusion of reality. But better than reality is truth. And he, he would dig and get the truth of the scene.
0: And as an actor, uh, you're watching this. Are you trying to figure out, like, is it a oh, mystery to you? Yeah, or is it- man.
1: So um, by that time, I was in college. And you go to the basics, you go to the Stanislavski books, you go to a pre studio guy named Richard Boleslavski who wrote a wonderful book called Six Lessons of Acting. But you go to the books, you can't really learn anything until you're practicing it with someone else. And and you let the drama happen between you, your scene partner, or between you and God, whoever you're talking to in a monologue. And
0: uh, is that teachable, uh, what he was doing? I don't I mean, think did- so.
1: He was his own genius. He, and he was the beginning and end of what he was doing creating. Um, no one could do it, but they tried. You could see Brando knockoffs. Yeah, They're a matter of parody now. When Paul Newman first started. do you see a lot of tried, Brando? Yeah, well, you know.
0: In his performance, yeah. you could see that? Yeah, you could see the style. As an actor, do you think you watch films completely differently?
1: I know I can't watch films with myself. In the- <laughs> to this day? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. I'll watch them, but it's just, oh, man, why did I do that?
0: Can you ever see your own emulations? So you go, I copped a bit of randos. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I steal. You know, I'm stolen from Al Pacino, everybody. But you do your own thing after a while. And like I say, I still steal from everybody I can um, because I'll see something that inspires me to do something else. Man, I'm open for anything. A lot of times I'm desperate. And i got to remember to relax and just let the spirit take you. Um, let the peace take you. Let the room take you, wherever it's going to take you. And every time I try to force it to be better, or a preconceived notion, um, what I'm going to bring in, it, it fails.
0: It's a funny thing, because I think what you're describing is acting instinctually rather than intellectually and having a plan. Yeah.
1: Now, there's a great mixture you can have of uh, heart and intellect, which you'll, you'll see in Kevin Klein the late John Hurd, Bill Hurt. Uh, there, you, there's a definite mind working there. And But a guy like Daniel Day-Lewis, another poet, what is he thinking? What's he going to do next? Because of his stillness. It's like watching um, Mark Rylance on stage. There's a passive jumble of things going on, but he won't move a muscle, and you're going to go right to him.
0: So when you watch something like that, do you go, oh, I can see some of the method there or I can see... I usually tw-
1: switch it off and watch the movie. Yeah? Can yeah. you do that? Yeah. I oh, no, you... I, I get sucked into things and there'll be bad performances while I go, well, it doesn't matter because it, it, I suspend my disbelief. Right. What
0: I notice in a lot of your performances is that in some of your characters there may be something lurking under the surface that you only let out a little bit every now and then. So the viewer can almost wonder if they're, if they're putting that, you know, I can Barton Fink after you run down the hall and you're firing the gun and then you sit on the bed and it's almost like you're letting the mask slip just a little bit and putting it back up. And and it's what we do as human beings. We, we think we're fooling the world. And I guess acting such a mystery to me of of how you modulate that. And it's a mystery
1: to me too. If I, set out to do the things you describe, I'd fail miserably. It's just something that happens. And Barton Fink, you've got a script by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and you let the script do the work and just hang on for the ride. The writing is so damn good, it lessens my workload. When I try to work, it gets things get sticky. It's when you let it happen. For me anyway.
0: Yeah. I'm fascinated with that idea of how much as humans we want to control things and, and do all the hard work and all the research and keep the critical voice at bay so that, so that when we come in to do our thing on the day, we feel prepared, but at the same time, sometimes that, that thinking can spoil the,
1: the yeah. instinctual. Well, for me anyway, and lately um, I've been working so much in so many different places away from home, uh, that I get fatigued. I start getting fatigued early, and then I make lazy choices. And then I do stuff that just could be through the day, and I gotta be very careful of that. I have to catch myself at it. And uh, you start to resent being on the road. So I'm, I'm uh, taking a little break now until something fabulous comes up. And it may not, but I'm. I'm letting myself off the hook for a while. I'm giving myself permission to relax, man. It'll only make, uh, I don't want to say this, make the instrument better.
0: (laughs) You know, I relate to that because every time I catch myself talking about something in terms of highfalutin, I just hear everyone in my high school and everyone, you know what I mean?
1: Shut up. (laughs) Exactly. Oh... (laughs) F-Stops. Oh, listen to Mr. (laughs) Abaddon. Exactly.
0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you think you may be depressed or if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, uh, you're probably not alone. I sure know that I've been in all those places throughout my career and even in the last eight or nine months it's not an easy time to feel great about things and BetterHelp Online Counseling Services offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and help with issues including anxiety, depression, relationship conflicts, sleeping difficulty, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. And if you're like me, if you're an entrepreneur, or an artist or somebody who has had to rely on themselves for most everything in other words if you've built your own life and you're going through this world trying to figure things out like i have been there are times when you just need help you need to sort things out and i've been a big proponent since my 20s of therapy when i first went to therapy You know it was like a needle in a haystack to try to find somebody that could help me and if you can imagine me back then going through the phone book and searching for therapists and asking people for recommendations it was a whole new world and it was a world that i didn't know anything about and so You know, it took me a while to find someone that I really felt good about. And and I feel great about this company, BetterHelp, because they've sort of managed to figure all of that out and make it much easier for you to find the right person that can give you the help you need. What they do is you simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. You can schedule secure phone or video sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited message, communicate with your therapist, and best of all, and of course, everything you share is confidential. If you're unhappy with your counselor, if you don't feel like it's a good match, you can just request a new one at any time for no additional charge. I think about if I had had this kind of access when I had started, it would have saved me a lot of time. Funny story, I used to ride my bike to therapy because I was trying to combine two of my self-care activities in one, therapy and physical exercise. And uh, I remember often being late and racing to therapy on my bike and coming in out of breath and well, it's a lot different now and it's a lot easier. And BetterHelp has really figured out how to do this from the privacy of your own home. It's just a great system. So join the one million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option, and the listeners of Off Camera get 10% off their first month with the discount code CAMERA. Go to betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com slash camera. And you can talk to a therapist online and get the help you need. Now, back to the show. Okay, so here's my question. When you're in school, you almost have access to all this great writing. Yeah. And, then, and then you go out and try to do it for a living. And it gets much harder, right? Because. Well,
1: get, get, getting a job right. is impossible. I went up to New York with a thousand dollars that my brother gave me and I wasted it on um, an acting school at which it it was like taking a step backwards from where I'd been in college Um, and luckily enough I got a job right away at a dinner theater in uh, Springboro Ohio really yeah playing Thomas Jefferson in 1776
0: wait so you went to New York and then you left New York yeah I
1: had to I couldn't get arrested in New York and that that proved to be true for a long time. I'd I'd get uh, off off off-Broadway jobs, which was great. I started, 40 years ago this year, I started with commercials. So I could support myself as an actor. In New York. And take cocaine. And start (laughs) drinking heavily. Yeah, as soon as I figured out, all I wanted to do when I got to New York was make a living as an actor. And as soon as I started doing that, I go, let's... You know, I just got dumped by a girl animal house was a terrible influence on me oh yeah yeah and um i discovered the miracle of cocaine how did you afford that well commercials unemployment <laughs> checks did but I, I you know because Kids? I, I couldn't afford it don't uh so don't follow was, uh, this career it Matt. was rare well i mean, i overly romanticized it because all uh, the hot shots were taking it and uh it was just overly romanticized. Copping the stuff was more fun than actually using it, Track, trying to track it down, and who knows, this guy, and you'd have to make 50 or 60 block trips to, to cop, then go back to where you were. Um, so it just seemed more special than it actually was. And all you're doing is chasing the very first high that you ever had that was so good. Anything after that is you're, you're chasing it. Right. But it got as close to an addiction as alcohol was. Um, it was just being able to use it, and it keeps me up so I can get drunker.
0: You have these two sides to yourself. One side, it seems like there is, and and don't scoff at the term, but there's <coughs> this, there's this artist that loves poetry and loves good writing and and seeking this pure experience of honest expression in the theater, and this other side, which is like hell-bent on self-destruction.
1: Oh, yeah. But you justify that by looking at how many actors and good writers were alcoholics. Oh, that's okay, I'm just following in a a good footstep.
0: Yeah, we do romanticize those kinds of things. And I think Animal House is a great example because it did make that whole lifestyle seem incredibly attractive?
1: Well, I got to New York at the same time yeah. as Saturday Night Live a couple of months earlier. What was that, like 75? It was 1975. They okay. won, They aired in October. I got up there in August. It was scary, especially for me. I'm, I'm a hick from Missouri coming in and gosh, and I just I developed a love-hate thing with it immediately. You did? Uh, because, yeah, I was always broken. I was always scared. Did you ever get mugged? No. I there were times when I would go into Central Park looking for a fight. You're kidding me? No. Just if anybody Just being with drunk me. and wanted Yeah, to- Oh yeah, I was I was at the bulletproof stage of alcoholism before I turned into the invisible man. What do you mean? Well, first it's fun. Then after a while you get bulletproof. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Says who uh, Popeye. Um then you I get really quiet and invisible. Nothing can hurt me and just all these stages of drunkenness, like stages of grief.
0: So you would go into Central Park just looking to have... I did it a couple
1: of times, just looking for a confrontation. Just, I'd get so heated up, but... um, Yeah, I was looking for trouble. And thank God I never found it. Thank God a lot of stuff never happened to me. I should have the good sense to believe that somebody's watching over me. But in my case, the ego is so fragile. Go, Why would they bother? <laughs> I just got lucky. Oh, <laughs> I'm okay. Thanks. Yeah, never mind. I don't want to bother you. No, but isn't that a funny thing?
0: To be out there in New York, you're in the place of uh, where you can reinvent yourself. You leave home.
1: Or invent myself in the first place. Because I kept shifting masks. I go between the jocks, and the nerds, the, the hard guys. Uh, I would originally, when I was in like seventh and eighth grade, I would do imitations. I used to be really good. I had a great ear and a much what would better you do? voice. Well, Gomer Pyle was a big one because I guess it was spot on. And I'd do it for the hard guys, so maybe they'd look out for me. And they'd, I'd crack them all up. They, we were all pals. And then I, you know, I, I finally got to a decent size where I didn't have to worry about it much anymore. It's but so I was class clown, I mean, I, that's, I just, I guess, craved attention that much, and I was given the opportunity, at a wonderful education, and I threw it away with both hands. In, in college as well, until I got something that interested me. I, I That's how just immature and needy I was. I was more interested in hanging out. Instead of doing it the right way, just doing it my way. Or instead of trusting uh, anybody, just no, I got this. It's funny thinking of you as as a guy who was
0: worried about the hard guys because. Well,
1: I was yeah, I was a little fat boy, and I had the the glasses with the tape in the middle, and I you know I'd wear the same jeans to a month in a row. You would. Yeah, I, I was nerdy man. I was uh, daredevil, Spider Man, James Bond. That was that was my secret kick.
0: I just can't get off this idea of you going into Central Park and
1: being angry. Yeah, that was like 1980s, early 1980s. So you had some... I don't know. You were doing commercials. You had some
0: success at that
1: point. Yeah. What do you think
0: you were fighting against? I think
1: it was being as ungrateful as I could because I was hanging out at a joint called the Cafe Central on uh, 74 in Amsterdam, and there was a lot of great actors that hung out in there, and I would talk theory with these guys, and talk acting, and they were working, and I was doing commercials. And I, I just really beat myself up over that. That's not the only thing. I was I was lonely, and uh, I had my friends, but we were all uh, barstool buddies. But no, the 70s, I was, I was too terrified to really do anything. The first winter I was there, I came home from Christmas after my very first job, and I couldn't get arrested. I was still non-equity, and it was... Fucking cold. I mean, it was the coldest I'd ever been. Was standing in uh, Schubert Alley with my brother's army coat on, looking with the trade paper in my hand, um, and the wind coming off the Hudson and whipping through that alley, and that's as cold as I remember being. But I was and I was scared all the time too, because you know, you go. I went to the used to go to the grocery store with one of those little clicker things that you'd add up the cents that you were, the things you were buying so you could stay in your budget. It was that close? Oh yeah, I mostly couldn't afford rent after a while.
0: Do you ever think that you were this close to maybe it not happening?
1: Oh, absolutely. And one of the first, my a cousin came into town, we couldn't afford to go to Broadway shows, but she had tickets for um, a play, and I went, it was my second Broadway show, and I looked, there was one guy in particular and I said, I can do this. I got this. I'm all over this. And that's that's the first time I felt like I could do it. Just just comparing myself with this guy.
0: Well, how do you measure that? Like, how do well, you measure I got, yourself? I was
1: so cocky in college and then that, that got knocked out of me when I stepped off the Amtrak train. I was just paralyzed with fear. Really? And, uh, you know, little by little you get a job and you realize that you're on the right path. So I remember that First
0: time I saw you, and it was that commercial where you slap yourself in the yeah, face and yeah. say, "That
1: was the first big one." I Thanks, had. I
0: needed that. Yeah. Was that Menon
1: Skin Bracer?
0: Right, and I think that that was the first jingle that got stuck in my head. <laughs> didn't it? At the end, didn't they say, "By Menon"? Menon,
1: Bye Menon.
0: Yeah. So, the thing that's letting you earn a living and stay in New York is also the thing that's making you feel like a fraud.
1: Right? Yeah, but that was that was me. That was my, like I always said, I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. <laughs> Um, I'm so much better than this. And that's just fear. That's just fear projecting itself. I I just, and not being happy with where I was. And then you throw uh, alcohol into the vortex and that becomes the vortex. It was great for five years. I had a ball, man, going to the bar every night. Then it got a little harder after about 10 years. I mean, I put on about 100 pounds. In New York? Of Budweiser. I mean there were times when uh, if I didn't go to New York I would have kicked myself in the ass for the rest of my life. Yeah. And there was a sense that I was accomplishing that and using what I was trained to do. There was a purpose. I I just don't think I I could have turned around and gone home.
0: Did you ever take a method class? Or all, the, all
1: the all the acting classes I took were based on the Stanislavski system. Method actors so it's, it's it's always a misnomer and it's always used incorrectly. In the early days, they would call guys from the studio torn t-shirt actors from Streetcar Named Desire, Oh yeah. or method actors. What did that it, really mean? There's a lot of theories about the Stanislavski system. Uh, one Lee Strasberg did, which uh, evoked emotional memory, and I'm out of my league here if, if uh, for you acting folks at home, but they would call that method acting, because you go away and you think of something that's gonna make you sad, but I think you're much better off using your imagination. But it's research, it's script analysis, there are people who try to live the roles. Yeah. And people are very. some people are very successful at it, some people it just sounds like gibberish. So you, I'm very careful when I talk about acting because most of the time I don't know what I'm talking about. Do you really feel that way? Lately, yeah, because I'm so far away from um, where I was in a class. Um, where I was sure that I knew what I was talking about, what I was positive but, uh, and now I'm not so positive anymore and and fatigue kind of burned me out a little bit, so I lost a lot of confidence uh along the way, really, yeah, I just kind of started picking it up again Saturday night um last thursday s n l called and I said, Do you want to, uh maybe we have something for you."
0: live television the red light
1: goes on you're
0: on is it terrifying for
1: me no because i got too much to worry about what do you mean doing the bit what am i going to do next and it's it's always under rehearsed so you got you got to be there so I, i just i don't even think about it
0: when you went on stage when you were young or had situations with live audiences or a saturday night live type of situation with live broadcast was it easy when you were young, and then did it get harder later? The
1: first play I was in was uh, You Can't Take It With You, and I was the patriarch of the family. And we'd, we'd rehearse for a couple hours every day, and uh, I got up and I had a big speech to give at the dinner table, and I forgot my lines. I started making things up, and I got up, and started pacing and I went around the back of the table and by that time I'd improvised myself back into the script. Really? Yeah, and the acting teacher, drama teacher, whatever we called her back then, was beautiful. She was an actress and she gave me a biggest hug and I said, hey, maybe there's something in this. <laughs> but I didn't panic. You didn't? No, I went through one period, I was uh, working in a musical on Broadway called Big River Yeah. and I was Huck Finn's dad, Pap. Uh, An alcoholic, um, but there was we were about six months into the show and for a week I had to come out and say a line at the same time And I started sweating and my pulse went up And I couldn't remember the first line and it got to the point where I said, okay Just go out and tell the audience you can't You're sorry, but you can't remember your first line and I went on. and I opened my mouth and the first line came out. But that happened for about a week. It was stage panic. And then it went away. And I, I, I couldn't analyze what happened. I have no idea. Oh, my gosh. Maybe it was just complacent or whatever, but uh, no, it was a full panic attack. I guess I was curious about your
0: critical voice and your, you know, if if that's... If, that, if at some point it, it was a helpful thing and then it stopped being helpful and you had to sort of listen to it, it and figure out. It's never it out.
1: balanced out.
0: It's never balanced because out. Because
1: lately I've been overcritical. And that's, I think that's my ego speaking. Oh, you could be so much better. And it's, it's balls. It's bollocks. It just doesn't fit. And then I'll be overly critical. But it works best when it's a matter of taste and a matter of style. And uh, do less. Do less. Yeah. You can tell when your critical voice is uh, on, the, on the money. There's a place for a critical voice, too, that could be helpful. Definitely, yeah. And uh, that one usually uh, is spot on. Really? Yeah, ju- that's just 40 years of acting, of knowing. But
0: do you um, set the bar too high, or did you
1: have to I learn something? I always did. You did? Yeah. Um, and that's an ego thing.
0: Do you think you are as hard on other actors' performances as you are on your own? No.
1: No, because I, I'll watch, uh, I'll watch somebody, and they're not up to snuff. But I, I still follow the film, saying so I just dial into it. And I believe in it because right. I want to.
0: But when you're doing the same thing, you're afraid that your performance could be detrimental to the film. Like you're not giving yourself the, that same yeah. Credit. It,
1: that's uh, yeah. That's a that's a bad voice. Yeah. And it's it's uh, not to be listened to. It because Christ knows what comes into my head half the time. You know, listen to a Charlie Parker solo or something like that, and the rest of the time it's meow, 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 meow. Okay, just it'll go away. It'll go away. Yeah, well, it makes you wonder what goes on in
0: anyone's head. What's going on in Daniel Day-Lewis's head, or what was going on in Marlon Brando's head? I
1: want to get laid. Who tonight? Oh, yeah. Talking about going on ahead. Um, Yesterday, a friend of mine called me who I associate with the song. I Got You, Babe.
0: Oh, yeah. Sonny and Cher.
1: Yeah. From a film that he did. And it it came on at the same time on the radio yesterday. I was thinking about him. I said, oh, that's pretty weird. So right before I woke up this morning, uh, Cher and I were at an event. (laughs) And I couldn't stop myself from singing I Got You. You know, I was embarrassing myself in front of Cher, but I couldn't stop myself <laughs> from doing it. I don't know if I was hoping that she'd jump in on the girl's part or even Sonny's part.
0: This is proof that the human mind is—it's unknowable—that you can have a dream, yeah—that you're with Cher, yeah—and of all the things you could be doing with Cher, you're singing her own yeah, song. I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we got to talk about the Coen Brothers, and especially in relation to what you just said about the idea of giving yourself. A break or or letting a performance be what it is yeah. instinctually I went back over some of the films and one of the things I noticed is there are some really big moments in, that you've played in their movies you've you know you're running down a burning hallway pumping shells into a shotgun and screaming in Barton Fink you're beating the crap out of George Clooney in Oh Brother
1: well, I beat the <laughs> shit out of the other guy I goes I don't think I get what you're talking about, Big D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you whack him in the head with a club. Yeah. And
0: then in Big Lebowski, obviously, you're pulling a gun on a fellow bowler, and you're beating the crap out of a Corvette.
1: Or oh, Was it a Corvette? Yeah. It was a Corvette. And I didn't know they'd bought the neighborhood out that night. All I know is I'm out there screaming, cocksucker, stranger, fuck you in the ass, and beating the dog piss out of a Corvette with a crowbar. yeah. And I thought the neighbors are just going to go nuts. And I felt bad that I was going to impose myself on them, even for a good film. So, and so this long came, in the nobody film Nobody came business. out. I go, you guys bought this neighborhood out, didn't you? Yeah. Let me tell you how the film business works, John. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, gosh. The Hulk?
0: You mean you have a second Corvette? I could beat that one, too. They no, did.
1: They did. The Hulk.
0: <laughs> no, but I, I would think that those are scenes... And moments where, I mean, even in Raising Arizona, you must have spent half a day
1: screaming in that
0: car, right? Because they shot it from every angle. Yeah,
1: I've always trusted uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen. I've trusted their word. What is on the page to me is gold. It's so good. And like I say, you let that do the work for you. Well, how did you do that scene where you came out of the mud? That was, they dug a pit and they covered us, us with foam rubber to keep the mud on top of it. And then we went down and then popped up. Then uh, we'd have to rinse off and do it again. When you're doing something like that, that and, and it's early in your career and you're with these guys,
0: it, I would think that not every film, as you go through your career, are you going to be as willing to do whatever they ask, right? But yeah. is, is that a director trust or is it just- No,
1: absolutely. And, and because I, I dug what they were saying, yeah. it was so goddamn funny on the page and I just wanted to do anything. To help. So, you've said many times that it's all on the page with the Cohen brothers. Because
0: I've seen interviews with you, and, and you always pretty much say it's all on the page with them.
1: But what does that translate to in your head? Is that that when you okay. read their writing? With Joel and Ethan, to me, the characters are so well delineated that that's, my job is more than halfway done. I just do what it says. I follow the instructions and uh then then i get inspired to do something else um within character and within the lines i don't trust myself enough to improvise with their dialogue i mean it's just so goddamn good um that i i just I, I just go along with it you know let it ride and then other stuff comes up
0: does that spoil you for other scripts like when you read a script do you have a a gut check of what you say yes to joel and ethan
1: are so unique that it doesn't spoil me because uh, it's different. It's a different style. It's just different from, from anything else.
0: But have you had that situation where you've not trusted your gut and you've taken a role
1: and... Quite a lot of times. Really? Yeah, uh, um, I'm not gonna say more often than not, but in a lot of cases, yeah. And that's <clears throat> my lack of trust in myself lately has been damaging to, um, to my acting.
0: God, it seems, like, it seems like so much of this art that you do, it's a fragile thing. It, it really has to be. Well,
1: there's another, uh, there's an AA slogan that says, fake it till you make it. Yeah. You just pretend like you're getting it. You <laughs> pretend like you're on top of it. You don't want anybody to panic. And uh, they'll tell you what to do. If you're getting it wrong, the directors will. Um, so you just go along with it.
0: I think maybe it is the territory of an artist to be 40 years into their career and still wondering if they can pull it off. Yeah. Like that to me really is what it's about, right? Because if you walked in going I got this and yeah. I know how to do this, that'd be boring to I, watch. Yeah,
1: it's it's boring to live that way too, but
0: uh Are you attracted to the high wire nature of things like Saturday night live?
1: I'm I must be. Yeah, you must be, right? I must be because I uh I trust Lorne and everybody at SNL to I just dump, jump off the deep end. Yeah. And this time, like I say, my confidence came back because I was having fun with it. Something I hadn't done in the last couple of times I've been there, I was overly worried about whether I fit in with the cast, um, if I got what they were talking about, because they are so much younger than I am now. Um, they have different ways of thinking, but, you know, a couple of people you talk to that you really respect and like. And that's all it takes. It's just uh, a couple of the great people in there. And the writers are always your friend.
0: It's funny you say that. And I think of, I think of you throughout your life needing to find somebody or some, something to latch onto because y- you didn't really have that.
1: Yeah. Well, I got very lucky in marriage. Yeah. Uh, she tolerated me. <laughs> and she put up with uh, 20 years of, of uh, drinking. God. and drug use, which she didn't know about. But And then, you know, I was hiding, toward the end, hiding bottles in the house. Really? Yeah. It just, it
0: never runs well. What, what you're describing is that you've hung on to something. Like, this self-destructive side of you that you keep hinting at is, it's like, a, a, I don't know, something inside you that has to screw things up when they get good. Or... Well, that
1: was a long time, and it's uh, abated. Um, I'm all, now that I'm, I've got about 10, 15 years left, I, I'm all about self-preservation.
0: Well, uh, okay, so maybe that's a good transition too. Yeah. to Roseanne. Because, uh, you know, I was looking at the timeline, and it's been 30 years since that show started. Yep. These kids that were on it in the original show, they're full-fledged old adults now. Yeah. Like, how did this idea of the reboot get floated oh, to I'll you? Well, I'll tell
1: you what happened. Um, Sarah Gilbert has a talk show on CBS called The Talk, which she produces. Right. Um, I went on there to pr- promote something. They asked me, would you like to do a little sketch with Sarah at the top of the show? It was sitting on a couch, like I was Dan Connor, the character from Roseanne, and she was Darlene, my daughter. And it was a little three-minute bit. And doing that, like, wow, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. This, I, I, this is like an old Gucci loafer. I wouldn't know, but it improves with age. And then um, right before I, my segment was over, she goes, John, would you think uh, you'd ever do a reunion of Roseanne? I said, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Because it was fun, you know, before I screwed things up for myself. Uh, we had a ball showing up every day at the studio. It was like family. And Rosie and I love to laugh. So I said, yeah. She called Roseanne that day and said, John said he'd be up for a a reunion show. She goes, John wants to do it? Yeah, I want to do it. And three weeks later, we had a deal with ABC. No kidding. And we got Tom Werner, the original head producer, is in charge. Um, It's a good group and it was magic stepping into our our reading. I was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, which carried me through uh, the three months or so we filmed this year. And everybody was the same. We were so grateful to be back and having so much goddamn fun. But the first time I stepped onto that set, they reproduced everything down to the wallpaper. It was like, It's a 20-year absence that seemed like a two-week Christmas break. Did it really? Yeah, and it was like a sense of belonging, a sense of comfort, and it was offset by the bizarre nature of it all. I don't have the language to describe it. It's a deja vu, but much stronger. And then when we started rehearsing, 20 years had vanished. No kidding. Yeah, it was wonderful.
0: Did you experience the same sense of chemistry with Roseanne right off, even though you two have to be wildly different people now? When
1: I I went in there to audition for the role, uh, I was in town for some shooting something in '88 or whatever. '87, yeah, '87. Yeah, I had like three movies in the can then, so I was I was really whipping up on a film group film career, and I went in and read for this with this woman who I only knew from a, a pizza commercial. And I hadn't seen her act yet, but she was making a lot of noise. Rose did you Lombard. know her as a comedian? Yeah, you? yeah. We just hit it off right away. It was, uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, we just we got each other.
0: And was that still intact?
1: Yeah, it was very much so.
0: So, do you believe in that idea of chemistry? Yeah, you do. Yeah, I don't. I
1: don't know what it is, but uh, for lack of a better term, we'll use chemistry.
0: And have you not had it enough in other situations to? to recognize its power, recognize the so. absence
1: of it? or I guess so, yeah. Yeah? But with us, it's really strong. It is. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. We hit it off from Jump Street, and I think I'm the only guy that auditioned. Really? Yeah. What
0: always struck me about that show is, and that time in American history, is that that was sort of, around the time where we still as a country all watched the same television shows and everyone knew those families. And you, as, a pers- as an actor, are in people's homes in an intimate way every week for nine years. You know, and I think that that's, that will never happen again. The there's, audience is We'll saying, never
1: get those numbers again. No. There's but, just there's too, many other, too much other stuff to watch. But what I was
0: always curious about with that was, a lot of television is aspirational and it's, you know, beautiful, skinny people being, you know, b- uh, being, having these, these lives that we sit on our couch and we think we
1: want. When we, when we started, the, the audience was watching da- Dynasty, right. Dallas. We followed Moonlighting. With there's the love boat, and there was the, yeah, you know, there's, yeah. there's
0: these things where literally you can imagine a room full of executives going, we'll have a show about on a cruise ship that everyone who can't afford a cruise ship (laughs) will want to watch this show. With X-Stars. Right.
1: we fixed that shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But when Roseanne started, you know, seeping into the consciousness after, what, a season or so, did you, I was always curious about the feedback you would get from people. I would,
1: I based, I I asked a lot of questions because I was supposed to lay drywall on the show. I can't do shit with my hands. (laughs) I can wipe. <laughs> um, you can you I, I, and I wash them, and then I'll grab food with them, <laughs> and uh, they're they're just never been my friends, as far as picking up tools. <laughs> Maybe it's the opposable thumbs thing I haven't figured out yet. <laughs> me, me, and tools just we don't get along. Don't try me. But you know, then I started asking my friends in St. Louis about you know working drywall. What does it take? What do we do? And these are guys. That I know that are still doing the same thing. Maybe you know some of them are living paycheck to paycheck, um, and I brought a lot of those guys onto the character. You well, did. I came from there. I mean, that's uh, I'm a Midwestern kid, um, lower middle class, uh, so it was a, a good fit.
0: Did you get a sense that people were? When when they would come up and talk to you, felt oh, I'm, like I'm you, everybody's dad. Like you represent them. Yeah. Right?
1: Or, uh, at the time, it was my brother-in-law or an uncle. Uh, yeah, I know you. But there was a real sense of connection with the audience, uh, with a lot of the audience, and they were they were us. Yeah. And a lot. I'm not claiming to represent anybody, but uh, a lot of people felt that we were them.
0: Is there something that it took the show ending the first time for you to realize about it?
1: When the show ended the first time, I tried to get out of my contract the year before. Okay. And ABC kind of assured me they would have no problem with taking my house. Really? Yeah, uh, there'd be legal shit involved. Uh, So I let it go, but I was, at the time, uh, drank myself into a place where I was ungrateful. I was drinking at work. Oh, you were on uh, on Roseanne? Yeah, I wanted to get out. Um, and I, this is my own fault. This is my own problem. But that's where I was at the end of the show. And the last season they said, well, you come back and we'll, you can do as many as you want. So I did half the, half the season. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't even know if I saw the last show where she, uh, we found out that I was dead. Right. Yeah.
0: Which conveniently well, didn't yeah. matter.
1: <laughs> yeah. There <laughs> sure he is. He's alive.
0: Why do people keep saying I'm dead? But the idea that you're so miserable and unhappy at that point, and then, and then you get a chance to sort of have a do-over. Oh, I, I didn't know that.
1: how lucky I was, man. I was, I was, I drank myself into the place where I earned everything that I got, as I did it on my own, and I had no help. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just a terrible attitude to have, and I, 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 I blame my alcoholism on that, and the things that that creates in your head. Um, you know, it had to come from somewhere, but uh, that's just bad air. And I want, and well, I thought about it after we wrapped this time that I was making amends. Really? Yeah, for my attitude um, in the last two years of that show. Um, by being, I, nobody gets this lucky, and uh, to be able to do this again and go back there and have the fun that we had and have that great feeling where I want to go to work every day. Um, getting there, get there early. My coffee, read the script, get my lines down, eat my spinach. Uh, it, it, the, the gratitude uh, that I felt was immense.
0: So around that time, when when you're drinking pretty heavily, season, what, eight of Roseanne, yeah.
1: you've got a daughter probably, what? In- she was born in 1990, so... Uh, yeah, she'd be, okay. So s- she five, five or six years old.
0: Okay, so, because that was right around the time when you moved to New Orleans. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So that period in your life, the tabloids seemed to follow Roseanne around. Yeah.
1: Well, I got the I got the backsplash from that. Uh, That's right. one of the reasons I moved out.
0: And I yeah, and I wondered if that if that move was in some ways, also a father move.
1: Oh, definitely, it was. I didn't. I don't want to say this to disparage Los Angeles, because it's a great city. I just didn't want her growing up in a showbiz environment, which I regarded as, uh, we're all carnies. We're all carnival workers. But I I was getting residual stuff from from the tabloids with Roseanne. I walked a buddy of mine's girlfriend out of a club one night, and he was right behind us, but they had me leaving my wife Divorce proceedings are imminent, and uh, I don't even know the girl's name, but she uh, yeah, she was a homewrecker. It was just little things like that that mounted up after a while. I had a, I lived a, I, I had a gated house right uh, in Encino, and I did that for a reason. But I I'd, I'd had enough, so we found a, a, a secluded part of New Orleans and moved there first. She went to a great school. And she loved it. It was a, a wonderful school. Because I would imagine
0: no one is prepared for, first off, that kind of uh, intense scrutiny and success. And the fact you're, you're battling alcoholism, which is, who knows where that comes from. I wasn't
1: battling real hard at the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but, you know, and then I'm sure questions come up like, am I being a good dad? I'm earning money, but yeah. am I? Yeah,
1: that was, that was my whole thing was I'm, I'm providing so that i let myself off the hook for a lot of bad behavior because i was providing right um uh, i never talked to my daughter about the effect my alcoholism had on her i'm sure it was uh she turned out great but she had her mother and her grandmother to teach her manners and she is a very polite young lady i remember one time we were in a swimming pool and she she, you couldn't tell her what to do. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it. She dived off my shoulders and hit uh, the step in the pool, the lovely little black eye, so I take her to the store and people go. they you know, they think I was beating her. Oh, God. See, I wouldn't,
0: I mean. I, I to just went. Do you think that because of the stuff you've gone through, you, you have a propensity for accepting guilt? And, or, or assuming that it's your fault?
1: I can't let myself think like that. Um, I'm pretty, if I'm at, at fault with something, I will try to correct it. And I'm pretty open now about seeing what that is. Um, but if I start wallowing in guilt, which I do, I'll go down to a path where it, it's no good. It's no good for, is I'm depressive anyway.
0: Yeah, oh, you are. Yeah,
1: and, uh, you know, I got—I know that I am, and I observe myself, and it's fine. But if I if I trigger myself into going down another, I'll just start sinking down.
0: Well, it sounds like you've come out the other side of that, at least being able to recognize it for today. Yeah. For today. Yeah.
1: That's sort of how that's an alcoholic has
0: to live, right? Yeah. For yeah. one day at a time. I did,
1: and that's a, all the cliché signs they hang up at the meetings—they're all true, and they are. And I found that out early on. Huh? believe the cliches, because they're cliches for a reason. One day at a time, that's all I've got. If I've, if at any time I felt like drinking, I put it off for an hour or make myself call somebody. It never happened yet, but you, you're one day at a time. You're only sober one day at a time.
0: Well, John, I, I have to say, I I really have enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. I love talking to you. I think that you're such a talented guy and and genuinely you don't trade on that talent, or or don't count on it. You just, you know what I mean. You're a good man, thank and you. and I thank you for being so candid about your life. Was I? Ca-
1: <laughs> what <did> I say? <laughs> thank you, Foster Brooks.
0: Thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me. This was this was special. This was a pleasure.
0: I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, should we roll the credits? Yeah. Okay. Hey folks, that's our show for this time. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And to see what we are talking about, go check out the new episodes of Roseanne. And you should also rewatch every Coen Brothers movie that John is in, because why not? That's what streaming is for. Start with Raising Arizona, and then watch Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and Inside Llewyn Davis. After seeing John's performances in these films back to back, it is hard to overstate his power of transformation, and character interpretation, even if it is all on the page, like he says. And did you know that Off Camera is also all on the page? Go to offcamera.com and check out our TV show, our magazine, and our store. And did you know that by getting a monthly subscription to Off Camera, you can watch our entire archive of shows on any device, anywhere you like. This is by far the best way to experience Off Camera, and it also supports the show when you get the subscription. So go to the website, offcamera.com, and see all that we have to offer. Also, if you're a fan of the show, don't be shy about telling people about it. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. So give us a shout out. Uh, I want to thank all the fine folks who work on this show every week. We have our sound editor, Nathan Shields, our visual artist, Michaela Galvin, our producer, Crawford Chippy, our studio manager, Sasha Snow and our transcriptionist Kara Johnson, and finally our own Matt Davidson, who is currently plucking splinters from his forearms. Don't ask. See you next time, Off Camera.